Thank you very much. I, I have to confess, I was, I was a little bit uh, daunted at the selection, at my selection. I was a little bit, uh, I guess you might say, humbled by it and intimidated by it. I mean, to be in this crowd, I really didn't think I deserved it until a friend of mine, another journalist, Tom Friedman of the New York Times, told me a story the other day meant to console me. He swears it's true. He says that uh, Golda Meir was sitting in her office one time in the Middle East when a State Department official came to visit her, whereupon she paid the State Department official a compliment, and he began to demur and protest and demur and protest, until finally Mrs. Meir looked up at him and said, don't be so modest, you're not so great. <laughs> it keeps me... Uh, it keeps me in a proper state of modesty to look at the others and realize, by comparison, not so great. You find me, our lives intersect, at a very tender juncture. This is the most contemplative time for those of us on 60 Minutes. We are just finishing the work before heading off into a July sabbatical and then gearing up again for the onslaught of stories that begin the next season. It's the time of year when we tend to sit around, talk among ourselves, and most of all, on those last plane flights before we head off to vacation, think about the lessons that we've learned on the road the last year. So as I was sitting there thinking what I might say to you before I gather we get a chance to take a few questions, I was thinking that maybe if you wouldn't mind I'll just share with you three thoughts from the road that have really been lingering in my mind as I winged my way toward you. In the last month and a half, I have been to Uganda, back to Green Bay, back to New York, back out to Wichita, back to New York, over to Moscow, back to New York, back to the Southwest, back to Central America, back to New York, and I'm getting ready to head to Ireland next Tuesday. A lot of time to do a lot of thinking about the past year on the road. And I guess the first lesson, and forgive me for its banality, but the simplest lessons are always the most difficult to absorb. The first lesson that really I learned from this past year on the road is how much early success conspires to stunt your growth how much all you know and all you've achieved conspires to keep you from taking the chances that let you learn something more. How treacherous it is for those of you who are so successful at this stage of your lives not to get on the path that leads directly in a linear fashion to a single goal and instead to remember that it's all about the journey and not the destination and that you will be the sum of all the things you've met, and you've got to take the detours along the way. It, it is one of the lessons I learned on the road this past year because I began my season with two interviews, one with Corey Aquino, the second with Imelda Marcos. Two women who are roughly the same age, one was poor, one was rich, but the single determinative factor in the divergence of their lives was not poverty or wealth. 
It was the quality of the education and their ability to grow. Cory Aquino was a mathematics major who, despite the image of her as the, as the frail and somewhat fragile housewife, always had a sense of herself and how to distinguish between illusion and fact. And very early in her life, Amelda Marcos became a prisoner of the beauty pageant and never learned to outgrow the values of the beauty pageant so that when I spent time with her, she actually had worked out a fairly um, consistent philosophy, which went something like this. God is beauty and beauty is truth. Therefore, if I look beautiful, I'm true and godly. She would reason this way when you were in the room with her, and you could see that at some point along the way she had become trapped in this weird and, and absorbing illusion. And just before I left her, she pulled me aside, and she said, there's something I want to make sure you do for me. And I said, what's that? And she said, come back to see me in a couple of years, because right now, homely women like Cory Aquino are in fashion, but beautiful women like me will be back again. And the second lesson, I guess I learned most of all on this past year on the road, is a lesson I have to keep learning over and over again, which is the longer you do it, the less glamorous it gets. It occurred to me this past year, uh, I thought I'd sort of seen the peak of, of, of lack of glamour when I worked on the morning news and used to get up every morning at 2.30 and stumble my way down the elevator, stagger my way out of the lobby into the street where uh, the only other women working at that hour <laughs> were... <laughs> I'll tell you, Barbara Walters told me once, she swears this is true, that she was getting into her car to go to work at that hour one morning. She heard one of them say, you know, honey, if she's still getting work at her age, there's hope for you and me. <laughs> but it came home to me most soundly this past year when I was in Uganda doing a piece on AIDS, going to a village called Rakai, where every third person is already infected with the AIDS virus. House after house after house, someone is dying of AIDS. And we had no choice but to stay in a truck stop out in the jungle. And I'm in the truck stop, and I get into bed, and I look around me, and crawling all over the bed are the biggest roaches you have ever seen. And I realize that the only way to keep the roaches off my face is to take a spotlight out and shine it under my chin, because at least that way they'll stay off my face. The next thing I know, I'm starting to go to sleep, and buzzing around my ears are mosquitoes. So I get out, and I get a shirt, and I put a shirt on, but I don't have any way to tie it. So I get some dental floss out, and I tie the strings around the, the, my shirt, and I tie it around my wrist, and I slather myself with all sorts of mosquito oil, and I get back in bed, and the next thing I know, the mosquito oil is dripping down into my eyes. So I get back up again, and I get some paper, toilet paper, out of the bathroom, and I roll it up, and I put it over each eye like this. And I get back in bed, and I'm lying there thinking... Here I am, in Uganda, with the roaches crawling over my hands and the mosquitoes swarming around my head, and the dental floss in my shirt and the toilet paper over my eyes, if People Magazine could see me now.
But the last lesson back from the road of this past year and 60 minutes is that increasingly I find myself gravitating not toward the people who have changed the world. And we were talking earlier about Hyman Rickover, who absolutely changed the world. But toward the people who give everything, commit themselves with full passion in order to just change one life or two. As Edmund Burke used to say, if you would do good, you have to do it in minute particulars. And I was thinking about it because I was thinking back to a little boy we met in a famine camp in Mali. And I don't know if you saw the story, but he was on the screen for 18 seconds. And he told me he was hungry and he slept on the ground and he had no place to go. And there was a woman in Indianapolis, Indiana, who was doing the dishes. And she looked up and saw this little boy and said, dear God, he's my responsibility. And it took her six months her entire life savings, $2,000 worth of phone bills to Washington alone, calling the bureaucrats, hammering them, flying there, taking the picture of the little Mohammed with her and putting it on their desk and saying, when you tell me I can't do it, you are talking about a little boy who's starving. Just know that you're not talking about an abstraction. And six months and her entire life savings later, little Mohammed Agalbakai was winging his way to become the most wonderful, ordinary little kid in the suburbs of Indianapolis, Indiana, where he lives today. So that when I went to see him not long ago to do a story and ask him what he wanted when he grew up, he could look at me and say, I want a limousine. <laughs> I would say to you only, not long ago I was up collecting, just for my own edification, really, from people that I really admired, the answer to a question. The question I would ask them is, what is the one thing you wish someone had told you before you started out on your career? And the answers came back uh, from the Dean of Columbia Journalism. I wish somebody had told me that when you go out in life, it's not who you know that counts, it's whom you know. From David Letterman came back the answer, I wish I had known complicated brain surgery procedures. <laughs> but from a woman you're going to meet later this weekend, Justice Sandra O'Connor, came the reply that has stayed the most with me. And she said basically, I just wish someone had told me that one way or the other I was going to make it so I could have had a little more laughter along the way. A few thoughts from the road, and a wish for all of you, a lot of laughter along the way. I am told we have time for two or three questions from the kids, and the microphones are in the back there. If there's anybody who's just seized. If, it, if you want to know what Andy Rooney is really like, I'm not sure I'm going to answer it. But. <laughs> Anything with that? Yes. I'm sort of blinded, so you'll have to say uh, That's okay. My name is Nick Ormseth. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Um, a lot of the segments on 60 Minutes uh, draw controversy. How do you deal with the segment? How do you deal with letters that say you have maligned somebody? How do you? How can you at, go on with your work and at the same time take it to heart 
and let it well, be. you know, we have a we have a an institutionalized male segment at the end of 60 Minutes in which we tend to put the letters that are the most, usually the most flaming and indignant. And we really see that as our opportunity to let all the people who felt the same way know that we got the message. Uh, my favorite letter, well, I have two favorite letters really. One is a little postcard that I got, but, and I like it the most because it really, uh, it really showed my vulnerability and, I guess, vanity. The first part of the postcard said, Dear Miss Sawyer, I think you are the classiest-looking woman on television. And I went, oh, yes, yeah, so oh, more and more. <laughs> the second line said, Dear Miss Sawyer, I think you and Dolly Parton are the classiest-looking women in America. <laughs> no accounting for taste. <laughs> my second favorite letter was a letter that called me a left-wing, arrogant floozy. The male only wounds when you're not sure of your facts. The only antidote to criticism is to know that you were right. And that's the way we deal with it. The controversy does assault us day in and day out, some of it very high level. We've been under White House attack a number of times. But we're all right when we get up in the morning if we know we're sure of our facts. Um, Messiah, I'm from, I'm from Beechwood, Ohio. My name is Cindy Young. Um, I was just curious that you deal with a lot of people that you interview, and a lot of them are very controversial, and people that not necessarily everyone admires. Who are the people that you really were doing the interview, and you just came across, you didn't, you didn't like them as people, you didn't respect them, but you just sort of had to go along with it and, you know, do what you could? <laughs> you work for Rona Barrett here? I mean, what is this? Oh, gee. Well, you know, there are people that you go into, not, not all the interviews are celebratory, so that you're not always surprised when you don't like someone in the middle of it. Um, I'll tell you one of the interviews that I least liked, and I won't name a name, but um, it was an interview with a dancer, and I bet Suzanne is going to guess who it is, but it was an interview with a dancer who had written the most exquisite book, a really lovely study of, of the the seams of agony in, in aiming for perfection in the dance. And I went to interview her, and we sat down to do the interview, and she said, well, you know, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough being, you know, you know, a dancer, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, this would be like going to see Edna St. Vincent Millay, and she would say, you know, the candle burns at both its ends, you know, you know, it will not last. <laughs> I'll tell you what we did in that case. We dumped it. <laughs> Last question, if there is one. Yes. <laughs> Hello. Oh, wow. Uh, this is, at first, it's going to sound a little, what's a big word for stupid? <laughs> we'll be the judge of it. Let us hear it. <laughs> we'll come up with our own word. All right. Just out of curiosity, are you having fun? <laughs> I am having more fun than you can have in grown-up work. I'm doing the thing that I dreamed my whole life I'd be able to do. My job is to learn things and tell people what I learned and get paid for it, and at the end of the day... <laughs> then it's probably illegal. 
<laughs> and I would only say it got me here, didn't it? Thank you. 